Chapter 10 of Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Public Opinion, Chapter 10 The Detection of Stereotypes. Skilled diplomatists, compelled to talk out loud to the warring peoples, learned how to use a large repertory of stereotypes. They were dealing with a precarious alliance of powers, each of which was maintaining its war unity only by the most careful leadership. The ordinary soldier and his wife, heroic and selfless beyond anything in the chronicles of courage, were still not heroic enough to face death gladly, for all the ideas which were said by the foreign offices of foreign powers to be essential to the future of civilization. There were ports, mines, rocky mountain passes, and villages, that few soldiers would willingly have crossed no man's land to obtain for their allies. Now it happened in one nation that the war party which was in control of the foreign office, the high command, and most of the press, had claims on the territory of several of its neighbors. These claims were called the Greater Ruritania by the cultivated classes who regarded Kipling, Treitschka, and Maurice Beres as 100% Ruritanian. But the grandiose idea aroused no enthusiasm abroad. So holding this finest flower of the Ruritanian genius, as their poet laureate said, to their hearts, Ruritania statesmen went forth to divide and conquer. They divided the claim into sectors. For each piece they invoked that stereotype which some one or more of their allies found it difficult to resist, because that ally had claims for which it hoped to find approval by the use of this same stereotype. The first sector happened to be a mountainous region inhabited by alien peasants. Ruritania demanded it to complete her natural geographical frontier. If you fixed your attention long enough on the ineffable value of what is natural, those alien peasants just dissolved into fog, and only the slope of the mountains was visible. The next sector was inhabited by Ruritanians, and on the principle that no people ought to live under alien rule, they were re-annexed. Then came a city of considerable commercial importance, not inhabited by Ruritanians. But until the 18th century it had been part of Ruritania, and on the principle of historic right it was annexed. Farther on, there was a splendid mineral deposit, owned by aliens and worked by aliens. On the principle of reparation for damage, it was annexed. Beyond this there was a territory inhabited 97% by aliens, constituting the natural geographical frontier of another nation, never historically a part of Ruritania. But one of the provinces which had been federated into Ruritania had formerly traded in those markets, and the upper-class culture was Ruritanian. On the principle of cultural superiority and the necessity of defending civilization, the lands were claimed. Finally, there was a port wholly disconnected from Ruritania geographically, ethnically, economically, historically, and traditionally. It was demanded on the ground that it was needed for national defense. In the treaties that concluded the Great War, you can multiply examples of this kind. Now, I do not wish to imply that I think it was possible to resettle Europe consistently on any one of these principles. I am certain that it was not. The very use of these principles, so pretentious and so absolute, meant that the spirit of accommodation did not prevail and that, therefore, the substance of peace was not there. For the moment you start to discuss factories, mines, mountains, or even political authority, 
as perfect examples of some eternal principle or other, you are not arguing, you are fighting. That eternal principle censors out all the objections, isolates the issue from its background and its context, and sets going in you some strong emotion, appropriate enough to the principle, highly inappropriate to the docks, warehouses, and real estate. And having started in that mood, you cannot stop. A real danger exists. To meet it, you have to invoke more absolute principles in order to defend what is open to attack. Then you have to defend the defenses, erect buffers, and buffers for the buffers, until the whole affair is so scrambled that it seems less dangerous to fight than to keep on talking. There are certain clues which often help in detecting the false absolutism of a stereotype. In the case of the Ruritanian propaganda, the principles blanketed each other so rapidly that one could readily see how the argument had been constructed. The series of contradictions showed that for each sector, that stereotype was employed which would obliterate all the facts that interfered with the claim. Contradiction of this sort is often a good clue. Inability to take account of space is another. In the spring of 1918, for example, large numbers of people, appalled by the withdrawal of Russia, demanded the, quote, re-establishment of an eastern front, end quote. The war, as they had conceived it, was on two fronts, and when one of them disappeared there was an instant demand that it be recreated. The unemployed Japanese army was to man the front, substituting for the Russian. But there was one insuperable obstacle. Between Vladivostok and the eastern battle line, there were 5,000 miles of country, spanned by one broken-down railway. Yet those 5,000 miles would not stay in the minds of the enthusiasts. So overwhelming was their conviction that an eastern front was needed, and so great their confidence in the valor of the Japanese army, that, mentally, they had projected that army from Vladivostok to Poland on a magic carpet. In vain, our military authorities argued that to land troops on the rim of Siberia had as little to do with reaching the Germans as climbing from the cellar to the roof of the Woolworth building had to do with reaching the moon. The stereotype in this instance was the war on two fronts. Ever since men had begun to imagine the Great War, they had conceived Germany between France and Russia. One generation of strategists, and perhaps two, had lived with that visual image as the starting point of all their calculations. For nearly four years every battle map they saw had deepened the impression that this was the war. When affairs took a new turn, it was not easy to see them as they were then. They were seen through the stereotype, and facts which conflicted with it, such as the distance from Japan to Poland, were incapable of coming vividly into consciousness. It is interesting to note that the American authorities dealt with the new facts more realistically than the French. In part, this was because, previous to 1914, they had no preconception of a war upon the continent, in part because the Americans, engrossed in the mobilization of their forces, had a vision of the Western Front which was itself a stereotype that excluded from their consciousness any very vivid sense of the other theaters of war. In the spring of 1918 this American view could not compete with the traditional French view, because while the Americans believed enormously in their own powers, the French at that time, before Contini and the Second Marne, had the gravest doubts. The American confidence suffusing the American stereotype gave it that power to possess consciousness, that liveliness and sensible pungency, that stimulating effect upon the will, that congruity with the activity in hand, 
which James notes as characteristic of what we regard as real. Footnote. Principles of Psychology, Volume 2, page 300. The French, in despair, remained fixed on their accepted image. And when facts, gross geographical facts, would not fit in with the preconception, they were either censored out of mind, or the facts were themselves stretched out of shape. Thus, the difficulty of the Japanese reaching the Germans 5,000 miles away was, in measure, overcome by bringing the Germans more than halfway to meet them. Between March and June 1918, there was supposed to be a German army operating in eastern Siberia. This phantom army consisted of some German prisoners actually seen, more German prisoners thought about, and chiefly of the delusion that those 5,000 intervening miles did not really exist. Footnote. See in this connection Mr. Charles Grasty's interview with Marshall Folk, New York Times, January 26, 1918. Quote, Germany is walking through Russia. America and Japan, who are in a position to do so, should go to meet her in Siberia. End quote. See also the resolution by Senator King of Utah, June 10, 1918, and Mr. Taft's statement in the New York Times, June 11, 1918, and the appeal to America on May 5, 1918, by Mr. A.J. Sack, director of the Russian Information Bureau. Quote, if Germany were in the Allied place, she would have three million fighting on the East Front within a year. End quote. A true conception of space is not a simple matter. If I draw a straight line on a map between Bombay and Hong Kong and measure the distance, I have learned nothing whatever about the distance I should have to cover on a voyage. And even if I measure the actual distance that I must traverse, I still know very little until I know what ships are in the service, when they run, how fast they go, whether I can secure accommodation and afford to pay for it. In practical life, space is a matter of available transportation, not of geometrical planes, as the old railroad magnate knew when he threatened to make grass grow in the streets of a city that had offended him. If I am motoring and ask how far it is to my destination, I curse as an unmitigated booby, the man who tells me it is three miles and does not mention a six-mile detour. It does me no good to be told that it is three miles if you walk. I might as well be told it is one mile as the crow flies. I do not fly like a crow, and I am not walking either. I must know that it is nine miles for a motor car, and also, if that is the case, that six of them are ruts and puddles. I call the pedestrian a nuisance who tells me it is three miles, and think evil of the aviator who told me it was one mile. Both of them are talking about the space they have to cover, not the space I must cover. In the drawing of boundary lines, absurd complications have arisen through failure to conceive the practical geography of a region. Under some general formula like self-determination, statesmen have at various times drawn lines on maps, which, when surveyed on the spot, ran through the middle of a factory, down the center of a village street, diagonally across the nave of a church, or between the kitchen and bedroom of a peasant's cottage. There have been frontiers in a grazing country which separated pasture from water, pasture from market, and in an industrial country, railheads from railroad. On the colored ethnic map the line was ethnically just, that is to say, just in the world of that ethnic map. But time, no less than space, fares badly. A common example is that of the man who tries by making an elaborate will to control his money long after his death. Quote, it had been the purpose of the first William James, end quote, 
writes his great-grandson Henry James, footnote, The Letters of William James, volume 1, page 6, quote, to provide that his children, several of whom were under age when he died, should qualify themselves by industry and experience to enjoy the large patrimony which he expected to bequeath to them, and with that in view, he left a will which was a voluminous compound of restraints and instructions. He showed, thereby, how great were both his confidence in his own judgment and his solicitude for the moral welfare of his descendants. End quote. The courts upset the will. For the law, in its objection to perpetuities, recognizes that there are distinct limits to the usefulness of allowing anyone to impose his moral stencil upon an unknown future. But the desire to impose it is a very human trait, so human that the law permits it to operate for a limited time after death. The amending clause of any constitution is a good index of the confidence the authors entertained about the reach of their opinions in the succeeding generations. There are, I believe, American state constitutions which are almost incapable of amendment. The men who made them could have had but little sense of the flux of time. To them the here and now was so brilliantly certain, the hereafter so vague or so terrifying, that they had the courage to say how life should run after they were gone. And then, because constitutions are difficult to amend, zealous people with a taste for mortmain have loved to write on this imperishable brass all kinds of rules and restrictions that, given any decent humility about the future, ought to be no more permanent than an ordinary statute. A presumption about time enters widely into our opinions. To one person an institution which has existed for the whole of his conscious life is part of the permanent furniture of the universe. To another it is ephemeral. Geological time is very different from biological time. Social time is most complex. The statesman has to decide whether to calculate for the emergency or for the long run. Some decisions have to be made on the basis of what will happen in the next two hours, others on what will happen in a week, a month, a season, a decade, when the children have grown up, or their children's children. An important part of wisdom is the ability to distinguish the time conception that properly belongs to the thing in hand. The person who uses the wrong time conception ranges from the dreamer who ignores the present to the Philistine who can see nothing else. A true scale of values has a very acute sense of relative time. Distant time, past and future, has somehow to be conceived. But as James says, quote, of the longer duration, we have no direct realizing sense. End quote. Footnote. Principles of Psychology, Volume 1, page 638. The longest duration which we immediately feel is what is called the specious present. It endures, according to Tickner, for about six seconds. Footnote, cited by Warren, Human Psychology, page 255. Quote, All impressions within this period of time are present to us at once. This makes it possible for us to perceive changes and events, as well as stationary objects. The perceptual present is supplemented by the ideational present. Through the combination of perceptions with memory images, entire days, months, and even years of the past are brought together into the present. End quote. In this ideational present, vividness, as James said, is proportionate to the number of discriminations we perceive within it. Thus, a vacation in which we were bored with nothing to do passes slowly while we are in it, but seems very short in memory. Great activity kills time rapidly, but in memory its duration is long. On the relation between the amount we discriminate and our time perspective, 
James has an interesting passage, footnote, Principles of Psychology, Volume 1, page 639. Quote, We have every reason to think that creatures may possibly differ enormously in the amounts of duration which they intuitively feel, and in the fineness of the events that may fill it. Von Baer has indulged in some interesting computations of the effect of such differences in changing the aspect of nature. Suppose we were able, within the length of a second, to note 10,000 events distinctly, instead of barely 10 as now. Footnote. In the moving picture this effect is admirably produced by the ultra-rapid camera. If our life were then destined to hold the same number of impressions, it might be 1,000 times as short. We should live less than a month, and personally know nothing of the change of seasons. If born in winter, we should believe in summer as we now believe in the heats of the Carboniferous era. The motions of organic beings would be so slow to our senses as to be inferred, not seen. The sun would stand still in the sky, the moon be almost free from change, and so on. But now reverse the hypothesis and suppose a being, to get only one one-thousandth part of the sensations we get in a given time, and consequently to live one thousand times as long. Winters and summers will be to him like quarters of an hour. Mushrooms and the swifter growing plants will shoot into being so rapidly as to appear instantaneous creations. Annual shrubs will rise and fall from the earth like restless boiling water springs. The motions of animals will be as invisible as are to us the movements of bullets and cannonballs. The sun will scour through the sky like a meteor, leaving a fiery trail behind him, etc. End quote. In his outline of history, Mr. Wells has made a gallant effort to visualize, quote, the true proportions of historical to geological time, end quote. Footnote, volume 2, page 605. See also, James Harvey Robinson, The New History, page 239. On a scale which represents the time from Columbus to ourselves by three inches of space, the reader would have to walk 55 feet to see the date of the painters of the Altamara Caves, 550 feet to see the earlier Neanderthalers, a mile or so to see the last of the dinosaurs. More or less precise chronology does not begin until after 1000 BC, and at that time, quote, Sargon I of the Akkadian Sumerian Empire was a remote memory, more remote than is Constantine the Great from the world of the present day. Hammurabi had been dead a thousand years. Stonehenge in England was already a thousand years old. End quote. Mr. Wells was writing with a purpose, quote, in the brief period of ten thousand years, these units, into which men have combined, have grown from the small family tribe of the early Neolithic culture to the vast united realms, vast yet still too small and partial, of the present time. End quote. Mr. Wells hoped by changing the time perspective on our present problems to change the moral perspective. Yet the astronomical measure of time, the geological, the biological, any telescopic measure which minimizes the present is not, quote, more time than a microscopic. Mr. Simon Strunsky is right when he insists that, quote, if Mr. Wells is thinking of his subtitle, The Probable Future of Mankind, he is entitled to ask for any number of centuries to work out his solution. If he is thinking of the salvaging of this Western civilization, reeling under the effects of the Great War, he must think in decades and scores of years. End quote. Footnote. In a review of the salvaging of civilization, the literary review of the New York Evening Post, June 18, 1921, page 5. 
It all depends upon the practical purpose for which you adopt the measure. There are situations when the time perspective needs to be lengthened, and others when it needs to be shortened. The man who says that it does not matter if 15 million Chinese die of famine, because in two generations the birth rate will make up the loss, has used a time perspective to excuse his inertia. A person who pauperizes a healthy young man, because he is sentimentally over-impressed with an immediate difficulty, has lost sight of the duration of the beggar's life. The people who for the sake of an immediate peace are willing to buy off an aggressive empire by indulging its appetite, have allowed a specious present to interfere with the peace of their children. The people who will not be patient with the troublesome neighbor, who want to bring everything to a showdown, are no less the victims of a specious present. Into almost every social problem, the proper calculation of time enters. Suppose, for example, it is a question of timber. Some trees grow faster than others. Then, a sound forest policy is one in which the amount of each species, and of each age, cut in each season is made good by replanting. Insofar as that calculation is correct, the truest economy has been reached. To cut less is waste, and to cut more is exploitation. But there may come an emergency, say, the need for airplane spruce in a war, when the year's allowance must be exceeded. An alert government will recognize that, and regard the restoration of the balance as a charge upon the future. Coal involves a different theory of time, because coal, unlike a tree, is produced on the scale of geological time. The supply is limited. Therefore, a correct social policy involves intricate computation of the available reserves of the world, the indicated possibilities, the present rate of use, the present economy of use, and the alternative fuels. But when that computation has been reached, it must finally be squared with an ideal standard involving time. Suppose, for example, that engineers conclude that the present fuels are being exhausted at a certain rate, that barring new discoveries, industry will have to enter a phase of contraction at some definite time in the future. We have then to determine how much thrift and self-denial we will use, after all feasible economies have been exercised, in order not to rob posterity. But what shall we consider posterity? Our grandchildren? Our great-grandchildren? Perhaps we shall decide to calculate on a hundred years, believing that to be ample time for the discovery of alternative fuels, if the necessity is made clear at once. The figures are, of course, hypothetical. But in calculating that way, we shall be employing what reason we have. We shall be giving social time its place in public opinion. Let us now imagine a somewhat different case, a contract between a city and a trolley car company. The company says that it will not invest its capital unless it is granted a monopoly of the main highway for 99 years. In the minds of the men who make that demand, 99 years is so long as to mean forever. But suppose there is reason to think that surface cars, run from a central power plant on tracks, are going out of fashion in 20 years. Then it is a most unwise contract to make, for you are virtually condemning a future generation to inferior transportation. In making such a contract, the city officials lack a realizing sense of 99 years. Far better to give the company a subsidy now, in order to attract capital, than to stimulate investment by indulging a fallacious sense of eternity. No city official and no company official has a sense of real time when he talks about 99 years. Popular history is a happy hunting ground of time confusions. To the average Englishman, for example, the behavior of Cromwell, 
the corruption of the Act of Union, the famine of 1847, a wrong suffered by people long dead, and done by actors long dead, with whom no living person, Irish or English, has any real connection. But in the mind of a patriotic Irishman, these same events are almost contemporary. His memory is like one of those historical paintings, where Virgil and Dante sit side by side conversing. These perspectives and foreshortcomings are a great barrier between peoples. It is ever so difficult for a person of one tradition to remember what is contemporary in the tradition of another. Almost nothing that goes by the name of historic rights or historic wrongs can be called a truly objective view of the past. Take, for example, the Franco-German debate about Alsace-Lorraine. It all depends on the original date you select. If you start with the Rorachi and Sequani, the lands are historically part of ancient Gaul. If you prefer Henry I, they are historically a German territory. If you take 1273, they belong to the House of Austria. If you take 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, most of them are French. If you take Louis XIV and the year 1688, they are almost all French. If you are using the argument from history, you are fairly certain to select those dates in the past which support your view of what should be done now. Arguments about races and nationalities often betray the same arbitrary view of time. During the war, under the influence of powerful feeling, the difference between Teutons on the one hand and Anglo-Saxons and French on the other was popularly believed to be an eternal difference. They had always been opposing races. Yet a generation ago, historians, like Freeman, were emphasizing the common Teutonic origin of the West European peoples, and ethnologists would certainly insist that the Germans, English, and the greater part of the French are branches of what was once a common stock. The general rule is, if you like a people today, you come down the branches to the trunk. If you dislike them, you insist that the separate branches are separate trunks. In one case, you fix your attention on the period before they were distinguishable. In the other, on the period after which they became distinct. And the view which fits the mood is taken as the truth. An amiable variation is the family tree. Usually one couple are appointed the original ancestors, if possible, a couple associated with an honorific event like the Norman conquest. That couple have no ancestors. They are not descendants. Yet they were the descendants of ancestors, and the expression that so-and-so was the founder of his house means not that he is the atom of his family, but that he is the particular ancestor from whom it is desirable to start, or perhaps the earliest ancestor of which there is a record. But genealogical tables exhibit a deeper prejudice. Unless the female line happens to be especially remarkable, descent is traced down through the males. The tree is male. At various moments, females accrue to it as itinerant bees light upon an ancient apple tree. But the future is the most elusive time of all. Our temptation here is to jump over necessary steps in the sequence, and as we are governed by hope or doubt, to exaggerate or to minimize the time required to complete various parts of the process. The discussion of the role to be exercised by wage earners in the management of industry is riddled with this difficulty. For management is a word that covers many functions. Footnote. Carter L. Goodrich, The Frontier of Control. Some of these require no training, some require a little training, others can be learned only in a lifetime. And the truly discriminating program of industrial democratization would be one based on the proper time sequence, 
so that the assumption of responsibility would run parallel to a complementary program of industrial training. The proposal for a sudden dictatorship of the proletariat is an attempt to do away with the intervening time of preparation, the resistance to all sharing of responsibility, an attempt to deny the alteration of human capacity in the course of time. Primitive notions of democracy, such as rotation in office and contempt for the expert, are really nothing but the old myth that the goddess of wisdom sprang mature and fully armed from the brow of Jove. They assume that what it takes years to learn need not be learned at all. Whenever the phrase, backward people, is used as the basis of a policy, the conception of time is a decisive element. The Covenant of the League of Nations says, footnote, article 19, for example, that, quote, the character of the mandate must differ according to the stage of the development of the people, end quote, as well as on other grounds. Certain communities, it asserts, quote, have reached a stage of development, end quote, where their independence can be provisionally recognized, subject to advice and assistance, quote, until such time as they are able to stand alone, end quote. The way in which the mandatories and the mandated conceive that time will influence deeply their relations. Thus, in the case of Cuba, the judgment of the American government virtually coincided with that of the Cuban patriots, and though there has been trouble, there is no finer page in the history of how strong powers have dealt with the weak. Oftener in that history the estimates have not coincided. Where the imperial people, whatever its public expressions, has been deeply convinced that the backwardness of the backward was so hopeless as not to be worth remedying, or so profitable that it was not desirable to remedy it, the tie has festered and poisoned the peace of the world. There have been a few cases, very few, where backwardness has meant to the ruling power the need for a program of forwardness, a program with definite standards and definite estimates of time. Far more frequently, so frequently in fact as to seem the rule, backwardness has been conceived as an intrinsic and eternal mark of inferiority. And then, every attempt to be less backward has been frowned upon as the sedition, which, under these conditions, it undoubtedly is. In our own race wars we can see some of the results of the failure to realize that time would gradually obliterate the slave morality of the Negro, and that social adjustment based on this morality would begin to break down. It is not hard to picture the future as if it obeyed our present purposes, to annihilate whatever delays our desire, or immortalize whatever stands between us and our fears. In putting together our public opinions, not only do we have to picture more space than we can see with our eyes, and more time than we can feel, but we have to describe and generalize more people, more actions, more things than we could ever count, or vividly imagine. We have to summarize and generalize. We have to pick out samples, and treat them as typical. To pick a fairly good sample of a large class is not easy. The problem belongs to the science of statistics, and it is a most difficult affair for anyone whose mathematics is primitive, and mind remain azoic, in spite of the half-dozen manuals which I once devoutly imagined that I understood. All they have done for me is to make me a little more conscious of how hard it is to classify and to sample, how readily we spread a little butter over the whole universe. Some time ago, a group of social workers in Sheffield, England, started out to substitute an accurate picture of the mental equipment of the workers of that city, for the impressionistic one they had. Footnote, the equipment of the worker. They wished to say, with some decent grounds for saying it, how the workers of Sheffield were equipped. They found, 
as we all find the moment we refuse to let our first notion prevail, that they were beset with complications. Of the test they employed, nothing need be said here except that it was a large questionnaire. For the sake of the illustration, assume that the questions were a fair test of mental equipment for English city life. Theoretically, then, those questions should have been put to every member of the working class, but it is not so easy to know who are the working class. However, assume again that the census knows how to classify them. Then there were roughly 104,000 men and 107,000 women who ought to have been questioned. They possessed the answers which would justify or refute the casual phrase about the ignorant workers or the intelligent workers. But nobody could think of questioning the whole 200,000. So the social workers consulted an eminent statistician, Professor Bowley. He advised them that not less than 408 men and 408 women would prove to be a fair sample. According to mathematical calculation, this number would not show a greater deviation from the average than 1 in 22. They had, therefore, to question at least 816 people before they could pretend to talk about the average working man. But which 816 people should they approach? Quote, we might have gathered particulars concerning workers to whom one or another of us had a pre-inquiry access. We might have worked through philanthropic gentlemen and ladies who were in contact with certain sections of workers at a club, a mission, an infirmary, a place of worship, a settlement. But such a method of selection would produce entirely worthless results. The workers thus selected would not be in any sense representative of what is popularly called the average run of workers. They would represent nothing but the little coteries to which they belonged. Quote, the right way of securing victims, to which at immense cost of time and labor we rigidly adhered, is to get hold of your workers by some neutral or accidental or random method of approach. End quote. This they did. And after all these precautions, they came to no more definite conclusion than that on their classification and according to their questionnaire, among 200,000 Sheffield workers about one quarter were well equipped, approaching three quarters were inadequately equipped, and about one fifteenth were mal-equipped. Compare this conscientious and almost pedantic method of arriving at an opinion with our usual judgments about masses of people, about the volatile Irish, and the logical French, and the disciplined Germans, and the ignorant Slavs, and the honest Chinese, and the untrustworthy Japanese, and so on and so on. All these are generalizations drawn from samples, but the samples are selected by a method that statistically is wholly unsound. Thus, the employer will judge labor by the most troublesome employee, or the most docile that he knows, and many a radical group has imagined that it was a fair sample of the working class. How many women's views on the servant question are little more than the reflection of their own treatment of their servants? The tendency of the casual mind is to pick out or stumble upon a sample which supports or defies its prejudices, and then to make it the representative of a whole class. A great deal of confusion arises when people decline to classify themselves as we have classified them. Prophecy would be so much easier if only they would stay where we put them. But, as a matter of fact, a phrase like the working class will only cover some of the truth for part of the time. When you take all the people below a certain level of income and call them the working class, you cannot help assuming that the people so classified will behave in accordance with your stereotype. 
just who those people are you are not quite certain. Factory hands and mine workers fit in more or less, but farm hands, small farmers, peddlers, little shopkeepers, clerks, servants, soldiers, policemen, and firemen slip out of the net. The tendency, when you are appealing to the working class, is to fix your attention on two or three million more or less confirmed trade unionists and treat them as labor. The other 17 or 18 million, who might qualify statistically, are tacitly endowed with the point of view ascribed to the organized nucleus. How very misleading it was to impute to the British working class in 1918 to 1921 the point of view expressed in the resolutions of the Trades Union Congress or in the pamphlets written by intellectuals. The stereotype of labor as emancipator selects the evidence which supports itself and rejects the other. And so, parallel with the real movements of working men, there exists a fiction of the labor movement in which an idealized mass moves towards an ideal goal. The fiction deals with the future. In the future, possibilities are almost indistinguishable from probabilities and probabilities from certainties. If the future is long enough, the human will might turn what is just conceivable into what is very likely, and what is likely into what is sure to happen. James called this the faith ladder, and said that, quote, It is a slope of goodwill, on which in the larger questions of life men habitually live. End quote. Footnote, William James, Some Problems of Philosophy, page 224. Quote, 1. There is nothing absurd in the certain view of the world being true, nothing contradictory. 2. It might have been true under certain conditions. 3. It may be true even now. 4. It is fit to be true. 5. It ought to be true. 6. It must be true. 7. It shall be true, at any rate true for me. End quote. And, as he added in another place, Footnote, A Pluralistic Universe, page 329. Quote, Your acting, thus, may in certain special cases be a means of making it securely true in the end. End quote. Yet no one would have insisted more than he that, so far as we know how, we must avoid substituting the goal for the starting point, must avoid reading back into the present what courage, effort, and skill might create in the future. Yet this truism is inordinately difficult to live by, because every one of us is so little trained in the selection of our samples. If we believe that a certain thing ought to be true, we can almost always find either an instance where it is true, or someone who believes it ought to be true. It is ever so hard when a concrete fact illustrates a hope to weigh that fact properly. When the first six people we meet agree with us, it is not easy to remember that they may have all read the same newspaper at breakfast. And yet we cannot send out a questionnaire to 816 random samples every time we wish to estimate a probability. In dealing with any large mass of facts, the presumption is against our having picked true samples if we are acting on a casual impression. And when we try to go one step further, in order to seek the causes and effects of unseen and complicated affairs, haphazard opinion is very tricky. There are few big issues in public life where cause and effect are obvious at once. They are not obvious to scholars who have devoted years, let us say, to studying business cycles, or price and wage movements, or the migration and the assimilation of peoples, or the diplomatic purposes of foreign powers. Yet somehow we are all supposed to have opinions on these matters, and it is not surprising that the commonest form of reasoning is the intuitive, post hoc, ergo propter hoc. 
The more untrained a mind, the more readily it works out a theory that two things which catch its attention at the same time are casually connected. We have already dwelt at some length on the way things reach our attention. We have seen that our access to information is obstructed and uncertain, and that our apprehension is deeply controlled by our stereotypes, that the evidence available to our reason is subject to illusions of defense, prestige, morality, space, time, and sampling. We must note now that with this initial taint, public opinions are still further beset, because in a series of events seen mostly through stereotypes, we readily accept sequence or parallelism as equivalent to cause and effect. This is most likely to happen when two ideas that come together arouse the same feeling. If they come together, they are likely to arouse the same feeling, and even when they do not arrive together, a powerful feeling attached to one is likely to suck out of all the corners of memory any idea that feels about the same. Thus, everything painful tends to collect into one system of cause and effect, and likewise everything pleasant. Quote, this day I hear that God has shot an arrow into the midst of this town. The smallpox is an ordinary ye sign of the swan. The ordinary keeper's name is Windsor. His daughter is sick of the disease. It is observable that this disease begins at an alehouse to testify God's displeasure at the sin of drunkenness and yet of multiplying alehouses. Footnote The Heart of the Puritan, page 177, edited by Elizabeth Deering Hanscom. Thus, increase Mather, and thus, in the year 1919, a distinguished professor of celestial mechanics discussing the Einstein theory, quote, It may well be that Bolshevist uprisings are, in reality, the visible objects of some underlying, deep, mental disturbance, worldwide in character. This same spirit of unrest has invaded science, end quote. Footnote, cited in The New Republic, December 24, 1919, page 120. In hating one thing violently, we readily associate with it as cause or effect most of the other things we hate or fear violently. They may have no more connection than smallpox and alehouses, or relativity and Bolshevism, but they are bound together in the same emotion. In a superstitious mind, like that of the professor of celestial mechanics, emotion is a stream of molten lava which catches and embeds whatever it touches. When you excavate in it you find as in a buried city, all sorts of objects ludicrously entangled in each other. Anything can be related to anything else, provided it feels like it. Nor has a mind in such a state any way of knowing how preposterous it is. Ancient fears, reinforced by more recent fears, coagulate into a snarl of fears where anything that is dreaded is the cause of anything else that is dreaded. Generally, it all culminates in the fabrication of a system of all evil, and of another which is the system of all good. Then our love of the absolute shows itself, for we do not like qualifying adverbs. Footnote. See Freud's discussion of absolutism in dreams. Interpretation of dreams, chapter 6, especially page 288. They clutter up sentences and interfere with irresistible feeling. We prefer most to more, least to less. We dislike the words rather, perhaps, if, or, but, toward, not quite, almost, temporarily, and partly. Yet nearly every opinion about public affairs needs to be deflated by some word of this sort. But in our free moments, everything tends to behave absolutely, 100%, everywhere, forever. 
It is not enough to say that our side is more right than the enemy's, that our victory will help democracy more than his. One must insist that our victory will end war forever, and make the world safe for democracy. And when the war is over, though we have thwarted a greater evil than those which still afflict us, the relativity of the result fades out, the absoluteness of the present evil overcomes our spirit, and we feel that we are helpless because we have not been irresistible. Between omnipotence and impotence, the pendulum swings. Real space, real time, real numbers, real connections, and real weights are lost. The perspective and the background and the dimensions of action are clipped and frozen in the stereotype. End of chapter 10